Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Psalm 69. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 482, Psalm 69. We finished our study in Ecclesiastes last week, and we're going to look at a few psalms for a few weeks. It's a long psalm, and so we're going to read it in two portions. We're going to start with verses 1 through 15. Beloved saints, this is your Savior's word to you this morning. Give your attention to the reading of it. To the choir master, according to the lilies of David, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore O God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let those who hope in you be not put to shame through me. Lord of, O Lord Yahweh of hosts, let those who seek you not be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brother's an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Yahweh, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Since the reading of God's word at this point, let us pray that he would be pleased to meet us in it and speak to us through it. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within the scriptures. So we ask now that you would open to us the beauty of your your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold the King of glory, and that you would grant us faith to receive all that we see and hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I spent five years there one week, so it goes the description of a boring place. It's how life works. Unpleasant times can seem to drag on forever. A week of fun will go by in a blink, but a week of waiting for doctor's results 
not so much. A couple of months of summer vacation can seem like a few days, but a couple of months of chemotherapy can seem like forever. The first few weeks of new love are a blur, but the first few weeks after losing the love of your life, an eternity. I can think personally of the hardest time in my life. The clock seemed to slow to a crawl. Days dragged on. And a time that in any other season of my life might have seemed like a blip on the radar seemed to last like an absolute eternity. And I'm sure you've been there. And if you haven't been, you will be one day. No one escapes it. Perhaps you're there right now. And the question is, how are we to understand those times when they come? Where are we to look for comfort? Because where we look for comfort reveals a lot about us. And Psalm 69 wrestles precisely with these questions. And it points us to our Heavenly Father's love as the source of comfort and assurance while we wait for His deliverance. My hope as we look at Psalm 69 this morning is to see that the steadfast love of your Heavenly Father gives you confidence that pain will not have the final word. That the love of God, your Heavenly Father, for you is what gives you assurance and confidence that pain will not have the final word. Now, saying that pain does not have the final word does not mean that it has no voice. Because pain has a lot to say. And it certainly finds its voice in this psalm. Well, let's be honest. A lot of the psalms talk about pain. But there's a reason for that. It's because pain is a big part of our lives. Much of our mental energy is spent trying to make sense out of the pain we experience in our lives. And there are so many things that cause pain. Family, sickness, loneliness, fear, failure, sin, political upheaval, our limitations, grief, unmet expectations, betrayal. And the one thing that can be said about pain is that everyone experiences it. They say that the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes, but that's not quite true. Pain is just as sure as death and taxes. No one avoids it. The best we can hope for are seasons of relief, but we all experience pain. It will come. That's that's the reality. For David, that pain is expressed in verses 4 and 5. Enemies are tormenting him. They attack him with lies, verse 4. He will later say, they give me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. It's not that they're just on opposite sides of the political spectrum. There's something personal here. Who gives someone poison for food? Who gives someone sour wine when they're thirsty? 
What could possibly make someone take pleasure in another person's pain and suffering and affliction? Pleasure. It's beyond human decency. I think we know what drives something like that. It's insecurity. People only take pleasure in the suffering of someone else when that other person is seen as a threat. And they think, well, if he's suffering, he can't be a threat, and so I don't need to fear him. It's, it's an attempt to allay your own fears. And so when we laugh at someone who's suffering, really what we're revealing is our fear. We feel threatened. What has made these people David's enemies? He tells us in verse 7. It's for God's sake that he bears these reproaches. It's because he's God's friend. He's hated because he has chosen to be a friend of God. Even his own family, verse 8, has turned on him. They hate him because he delights, verse 9, in going to worship, going to God's house. They hate him because, verse 10, he has humbled himself and admitted before his creator that he is a sinner in need of help. And such brokenness, such honesty, offends these people. He's not towing the party line that people are basically good and that they can accomplish anything if they band together. And so he's an outcast. Even the town drunks mock him. If you want to be unpopular, follow David's example. You don't need to be in people's face about it. Just choose to go to worship instead of a social gathering. Just say, I can't make it. I'm going to be at church that week, like I am every week. Just admit that you need forgiveness from God and that you don't deserve heaven. All you have to do is have a sober outlook on the sin within your own heart. And your friends will flee from you like someone with the plague. Because such convictions, such honesty, are like a spotlight on others' need for grace. And so their only solution, well, short of repentance, is to vilify you, mock you, marginalize you, minimize you. And that's what they're doing to David And so he prays for rescue. That's really what this psalm is about. Uh, His description of his situation is tragic. He he says in verses 1 through 3 that he's simultaneously surrounded by water and dying of thirst. It's as if nature is mocking him. Like life is a cruel joke. 
of pain and suffering. The waves keep coming over his head. And every time he thinks that his foot is finding purchase, it it shakes loose. The water covers his face. He chokes on water. And he wonders how long he can tread water before the depths finally make their claim on his life. And so he makes a request. Verses 13 through 15, he says, Deliver me from sinking into the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close over my mouth. Lord, don't let suffering have the last word. Don't let my enemies win. Don't let the depths consume me. There has to be more. There there has to be salvation. There has to be rescue, he says. There has to be because God is good and God is just. Woven into this psalm is a lament that he is suffering unjustly. His afflictors hate him, verse 4, without cause. They're mocking him and they're making up lies about him. They're forcing him to pay debts that he hasn't rung up. The same could be true of any other pain. Your spouse betrays you even though you have been faithful. You get cancer even though you've tried to be healthy and watch what you eat and you've exercised. You could obey every traffic law and the drunk still hits you. You could work hard and yet still be the one that gets laid off instead of your boss's son. You could be a good friend but still end up alone. You could try to help only to be taken advantage of. You're left with the totaled car, a pile of debt. You make the loan only to find out that the person never had any intention of paying you back. You might offer the faithful words of a friend only to be accused of being mean. And it's not that David's innocent. It's not that he's without sin. But how he's being treated is undeserved, it's unfair, it's, it's unjust. And he knows that God is angered by injustice. And so the, toward, toward the end of the psalm is a prayer for justice. Don't let them get away with it. Let the prisoners, I'm sorry, let the poisoners be poisoned. Bring your justice to bear. Rescue me from my torment. And don't let justice be silenced. Those are David's two prayers. Rescue me and bring justice. The first confidence that we have is that pain will come, just as surely as death and taxes. But there's another confidence God's people have. As certain as pain in life is, so too is the assurance that God will bring restoration to his people and his creation. So let's read the the second half of the psalm, verses 16 through the end. Verse 16. 
Answer me, O Yahweh, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment, that they may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please Yahweh more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. For sorry, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. For Yahweh hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. What David asked for in verses 14 and 15 is reflected in how the psalm ends. God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and his people shall dwell there and they shall possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit and those who love his name shall dwell in it. What he prayed for, that deliverance, that rescue, he knows is coming. Everything broken will be fixed. Everything stolen will be restored. Everything torn down will be built up. Everything defiled will be made clean. Everyone who has died in the Lord will be raised to new life. That is the unshakable confidence of God's people. Restoration, salvation, resurrection, glory is coming. You see, there are no maybes, possiblies, or mights when it comes to God's plan for the future. For God, the future is as set as the past. As absolutely certain as the past. As unmovable and unchangeable. He has revealed his plan for us in his word. The only thing he hasn't shared with us is the when. But we know exactly how it will end. We know what's coming. And so it's not just death and taxes and pain that are certain. The future is written as well. It is unshakable and it is glorious. That doesn't mean 
that everyone will be in heaven. It doesn't mean that all will benefit. If you're sitting here today thinking, if there is a heaven, I'm sure I will go there. I treat people as I want to be treated. I I work hard. I don't cheat on my taxes. If that's what you're thinking, you're not listening to the psalm, to God's word. The two categories, the two groups that divide humanity are not the nice and the mean, the, the good and the bad, the honest and the corrupt. The only two real categories are friends of God and friends of the world. To be a friend of God as David learned, is to be estranged from the world. That's made abundantly clear in the way that David prays for himself and for his enemies. For his enemies, he appeals to God's justice. Give them no acquittal. Offer them no mercy. Deal with them only as justice requires. It's as if he's saying, throw the book at them. When the end comes, the last thing you want is what you deserve. Because God's justice is perfect. And that means he must require absolute obedience. It's, it's like a person who commits murder and then says, It was only once. Think of all the people I didn't kill. Because that once defines you. Any sin against God is a violation of his perfect righteousness. One sin, one failure to love him as he deserves, to worship him as he is due, to obey him as is fitting for your creator, forfeits any claim on heaven. But of course, the problem is we're not worried about one failure. Each of us has mountains of failures in our wake. And that's why David is so certain that those who reject God will not escape justice because God is just, perfectly so. That's the basis of his confidence that they can't escape forever. It's God's character. But his prayer for himself is not based upon his confidence that God is just. Look at verse 13. O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me with your saving faithfulness. Verse 16. O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. Verse 29. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. David is pleading for mercy, for grace, for salvation, for love. At the beginning, he confessed not only that he has his share of sin, but that God knows it all. Verse 5, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. He's under no delusion that he has some claim on heaven. He does not presume that God will let him in because he's one of the good guys. His hope, his only hope, is for mercy and grace and forgiveness. 
And so just as he invoked God's justice for his enemies, he invokes God's loving kindness for himself and for all who choose friendship with God. It's God's unfailing love, his his unswerving faithfulness, his absolute dedication to his people that gives David confidence. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's love cannot fail to rescue his people. That love was perfectly manifested in Jesus Christ when he came into this world. Knowing that his justice is perfect and must be satisfied and that that his love cannot fail, God was left with one option and one option only. He would have to come and suffer all that his people deserved in their place. He would have to allow himself to be made to restore what he did not steal, to pay a debt that was not his own. That being the case, it's no surprise that this psalm is quoted or alluded to multiple times in the New Testament to talk about the work of Jesus. When preparing his disciples for his upcoming betrayal and murder, he quoted verse 4 saying, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Three of the Gospels record that when Jesus was on the cross and he said he was thirsty, they gave him sour wine to mock him. At his trial, the the evidence that was marshaled against him was that he cleansed the temple. And when he did, you remember what he quoted? Zeal for my father's house has consumed me from Psalm 69. In reflecting upon his sacrificial death, the Apostle Paul quoted verse 7 and said, For Christ did not please himself, but as it was was written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. What I'm saying is that the love of God was made clear in his willingness to endure all the pain of this psalm in order to bring about the glorious end of this psalm. The psalm begins with this mourning, this lament, this pain. It ends with this glorious restoration and salvation. And in order to get from that pain to that glory, Jesus came and endured the pain in order that the glory might be ours. Because the only way to rescue his people was to suffer, not just alongside of them, but in ways that we could never survive on our own. He willingly paid up the debt we racked up. He restored what he did not steal. When you are suffering pain and affliction, where do you look for comfort? To, for your, at your own strength? Or do you simply look for a change in circumstances? Or do you find comfort in the unshakable conviction and certainty that your heavenly Father loves you and has sent his Son into this world to pay your debt? As you read the psalm, 
Is it easier to resonate with David's lament and pain or his confidence in future glory? If you're anything like your pastor, it's easier to resonate with the pain than to say, I wish I had that confidence. Why is it easier for us to identify with the pain than the comfort? Why are we more certain of earthly pain than heavenly joy? Perhaps it's because we know pain by experience and joy by promise. But God says that makes it no less real, no less certain. For God, the future is as fixed as the past. As certain as what lies behind us. It's a guaranteed future. All we have to do is wait. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's waiting that's the hardest part. We're not good at waiting. It's hard. Sometimes an afternoon feels like a week, and a week feels like a month, and a month like a year. Hard times drag on. They seem disproportionately long. The the clock slows to a crawl. What would have seemed like a blip in any other season of our life feels like an absolute eternity. We struggle to wait and to adore because waiting is hard and David gets it. Look at verse 3. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. It's honest. No one escapes it. Perhaps you're there right now. Where can you look for comfort? The steadfast love of your heavenly Father gives you confidence that pain will not have its last word. It can't because God loves you. And believing that can help you say with verse 13, This is a scary prayer. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. What do we want to pray? Today, answer me out of the steadfast love and your abundant faithfulness. But the man who was weary with waiting was able to say at the appropriate time, Because not yet does not mean never. The only thing that can give you strength to wait in confidence is what the future holds. The only thing that can give you confidence is the steadfast love of God towards you. That love was revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus because only love could compel him, could compel him, to surrender his life. 
But death didn't have the final word. He rose from the dead. Life triumphed over death, joy over pain. But not immediately. For three days, he had to wait in the grave. I'm sure for his disciples, it felt like an eternity. It's Sunday morning. How long ago does Friday feel for you? The disciples' question was whether he would be abandoned to the grave. But Jesus had promised them he would rise again. And his promises never fail. You might feel like you're right there with the disciples waiting on Jesus in the grave. When the pain of Friday turns to the waiting of Saturday, the scriptures tell you to remember that Sunday is coming. If you belong to Jesus, the grave cannot win. It can't. Because the future is as sure as the past. And it's that confidence that can allow you to worship God even as you wait. When you believe that this world has nothing to offer you and that you are loved by your Heavenly Father, you will be consumed by zeal for His house. And you'll delight in coming to worship. You will praise His name with a song and give Him thanks. And you can do so knowing that He's pleased with your worship more than all the gifts you could ever offer. When you draw near to God in humility, verse 32 says he revives your heart. Verse 33 tells us that the Lord hears those who are in need and he never despises his people. This is the comfort that belongs to those who humbly draw near to the God of perfect love. And that love is made visible this morning for us. You see, the enemies have their table. And it's set with poisonous food and sour wine. But God tells us in Psalm 23 that he prepares for us a table in the presence of our enemies so that our cups overflow and that our souls are refreshed within us. The Lord's Supper is meant to remind you that you belong to Him and that you are not alone as you wait. The Supper reminds you that Jesus has paid your debt. It reminds you that there is a day coming of feasting in abundance. It's a visible picture to you of your certain future and God's perfect love. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this this gift and this reminder from our God this morning. Please pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your reminder that as certain as pain is, so too is the assurance of eternal joy for those who belong to you. Teach us not to look to ourselves for comfort, to not simply depend on changing circumstances, but to hear your promises, to drink them in, and to be satisfied that for you the future is as fixed as the past.
You are our eternal comfort. Amen.